Welcome to all those joining us for the Shir and Chaim Aran. We're continuing. We're back in Eretz Yisrael after Rosh Hashanah. Baruch Hashem, despite all the seeming dangers and risks, Rosh Hashanah in Uman this year was wonderful. And the trip there and the trip home also, Baruch Hashem, there were no has shown no incidents of war or anything resembling war, Baruch Hashem. We hope and pray that all the tefillahs that were said there and all over all over the world should, should bring about all the Yeshua's that Klai Yisrael needs in Tzashem. We're continuing from paragraph 198. Rabbein Azal told an interesting mashal, a parable, regarding the intellectuals, the masculine that used to visit him in Uman. Remember, we mentioned that the city of Uman was a place where, where the Haskola movement, the Enlightenment movement, was, was actually founded sort of in the Ukraine, in that part of the world. It began really in Germany, but again, unfortunately, it spread to the Pale of Settlement. It spread into the Ukraine, and Uman was a place where there were these three aristocrats who were major masculine. And Rabbein Azal had many dealings with them. We spoke about them in the past. We'll have more about them in the future. But Rabbein Azal mentioned this parable regarding the fact that they used to come to him and they would tell him all kinds of nonsense from the literature that they read, their philosophy books. And Rabbein Azal said, pretty soon they'll have used up all of their stock. And, and it won't be long before they're not going to have anything more to say. They're going to see that they ran out of things to, to say. And Rabbein Azal gave a moshul related to this about a person who had left home for a long period of time to, to, to try to provide for his family. And he was a peddler. He sold things and uh, went from city to city. And then at one point, he was attacked by a robber. And the robber said to him, do you have any money? And he said, yes, I'll give you all my money, but don't kill me. So the robber took all of his money. And then this person said to the robber, how can I go home like this without any money at all? I've been away from home for such a long time. And, and, and they'll look at me like I'm, I'm crazy. That who knows, I, I wasted all this time. Can you please do me a favor? Could you take your pistol and shoot a hole in my hat so they'll, they'll know that I was attacked? And, you know, I didn't just give away. A, I, I, I had money, but I, I lost it to a robber. So the robber said, OK, and he shot, shot a bullet through his hat. And then he said, one more from this side, you know, one more from this side to make it really look real that I was under attack. You know, but I didn't give away my, the money just like that. And eventually the robber said he told him one more bullet. And the robber tried shooting, and he said, I don't have any more bullets. He said, you don't have any more bullets? Come here. And he took him by the neck, and he started screaming for people to help him. And he was able to defeat the robber and take back all of the money that he had taken away from him. And Rav Nosenzal said, the moral of this parable was clear to all those who heard Rav Nosenzal say this, meaning that the Sitra in all of its different forms, tries to attack a person, tries to attack the Jewish people, and they have bullets, real bullets, live rounds, and they shoot and they shoot, 
but there comes a point where they used up all of their bullets and, and the, the Kedusha is still standing. And, and Rabbi Nezal is showing us that there'll come a time when the Sitrachra will have finished all of its bullets and then we'll be able to take them and defeat them and be able to retrieve, to take back all the things that they took away from us. This is one of the important themes in the final shear that Rabbi Nezal gave the Rosh Hashanah before he passed away. He spoke about the Pasuk, Chel Bola Vayikienu, that the Satan, the Sitrachra, is able at certain times to swallow up Kedusha. When we, <coughs> when we commit sins, then even when we do mitzvahs sometimes, and our mitzvahs have many shortcomings in them, unfortunately, sometimes those mitzvahs get swallowed up by the Sitrachra. And, and this empowers the Sitrachra. But the Pasuk says that even though the Sitrachra is able to swallow up this power, this chel, vayikienu, there comes a time when he's forced to throw it up, to vomit it up, to regurgitate it, to return it. And Rabbi Nezal spoke a lot about this. And he, he revealed an incredible secret that the tzaddikim at certain times know how to present a certain type of tefillah called a tefillah bebechinas din, which when the sitrachra tries to swallow that tefillah, because of the fact that it's din, and, and the sitrachra is din, the sitrachra is the left side, this tefillah gets stuck in the throat of the sitrachra, and sometimes when something is stuck in a person's throat, and they can't get it out, the only way to get it out is to try to throw up, to vomit. And Rabbi Nassau explained that the Sitrachra is forced to, to return, to, to give back all kinds of Kedusha that it swallowed up in the past. The next item seems to be unrelated. Paragraph 199, Rabbi Nassau says this took place on a Sunday, the first day of Sivan, during the time that Rabbi Nassau was in Umar. He arrived in the month of Iyar, and he was there for about five months, approximately. Rav Nassau says, Rav Nassau said to me, when you left with me on the trip coming to Oman, you told me something, you said something to me. Afterwards, Rav Naftali, my student Rav Naftali, said the same thing. And afterwards, Rav Yudel said the same thing. When you told it to me, you told it to me in the form of a hint. You didn't even realize what you were saying in a sense. You were saying something, and it was a message for me, Rabbi Nezal was implying, in the form of a hint. And I was very surprised. But they, the other two, told it to me more clearly. And Rabbi Nezal said, judging by what people are talking about in general, I'm hearing the same type of message from them also. And he said, now we're going to see. So Rav Nassau says, I asked him if this has to do with something that's going to take place in the future. And Rav Nassau said, yes. And later on, when this comes to, when this happens, we'll be able to take out the eyes from the philosophers, from those people who deny the existence of Hashem, and they focus on all kinds of questions against religion. And, and uh, Rav Nachman Shurim, who compiled the Chaim Aran, 
from Ragnosen Sal's notes, he writes that this item remains a mystery. We don't know. I, I'm sorry, this is Ragnosen Sal saying. We don't know what it is that we said to Rabbeinazal and, and what, what has to happen to be able to bring about this tremendous defeat of these philosophers. The next paragraph, Reish 200, Rabnosenzal points out that there were times that Rabbeinazal did things which, which to people appeared incredible and very mysterious. And people deluded themselves about the things he was doing, each one trying to come up with reasons. I know why he did this. I know what this is all about. For example, his, his trip to Uman, people came up with all kinds of ridiculous reasons as to what Rabbeinazal's motive was. Whereas in fact, his intentions were on a very, very high level. There certainly was no motive of any personal gain. It had nothing to do with his reputation or anything like that. It was purely for the sake of Hashem's Kovli. And Rabbeinazal commented that sometimes it's good to let a, a fool, a shoyter, loose among people. Because everybody's fooling somebody and that somebody is themselves. People deceive themselves and they make a fool out of themselves sometimes. And a person who doesn't fool themselves, a person who's extremely careful not to fool themselves, he ends up fooling the whole world. Meaning that the whole world tries to figure out what he's all about. And because they are not so sincere and honest, they come up with all kinds of false ideas of why they think this person is doing what they're doing, but in actuality, they really have no idea. And Rav Nosanzal now paraphrases this. He says that each and every person had their own illusions as to what Rabbeinazal's purpose was. And Rabbeinazal didn't have to fool them. He didn't have to do anything to trick them because they were fooling themselves on their own. Each one applied their own false interpretation as to why they thought Rabbeinazal was doing certain things. And, and Rabbeinazal explains that it's, it's extremely rare that a person should be able to do things purely l'shem shamayim with no other motive or reason whatsoever. Unfortunately, people fool themselves and, and very often, very often that there's personal gain involved. Whereas a person who really is on a level of being able to do everything 100% l'shem shamayim with no other motive and no, no desire of any personal gain, then everything he does seems completely a mystery to everybody else because they have their own illusions because they can't fathom such a madrega, a level that a person could be totally l'shem shamayim. So therefore, Rabbi Nizal said, this person who doesn't want to fool himself in any way, this person has to let loose 
this type of foolishness in a sense, where people, people fool themselves about him. And, and Rav Nosazal says this, I, there's no way I can really explain this clearly. Another time Rav Nosazal left at the way people give all kinds of false interpretations as to why he does certain things. And Rav Nosazal said, based on, on the reasons they're coming up, it would seem that it's pretty easy to figure out what I'm doing because each, each Yuckelberger comes up with explanations, he knows, and that kind of thing, implying that, that obviously these people don't really know. It's interesting to note that the Gemara says, the Mishnah says in Perki Ovois, kol that a person who learns Torah really for the sake of Hashem, for the sake of the Torah, without any personal motives, and the Mishnah goes on to show the incredible levels that that person attains, that they achieve the complete humility and respect for Hashem, and they like everyone, and they're liked by everyone, and, and from heaven they reveal secrets to that person, and, and it gives a list of, of incredible, incredible things that a person is zoichet to, if the person is zoichet to learn Torah lishma, meaning learning Torah purely for the sake of the Torah without any, any personal gain whatsoever. Reb Chaim Vital, who lived approximately 500 years ago, the closest to the Arizal, writes to the rabbis of his generation. We're talking about the rabbis who lived around the time that the Shulchan Aruch was being written originally. He writes to them that a person needs to look at this Mishnah and see how the Mishnah describes how, what a person would achieve if they were to learn Torah Lishma, and then realize that we are still very far from that. We're very far from achieving this madrega of learning Torah Lishma, learning Torah really purely without any personal motives whatsoever. Whereas he writes about the Arizal, his rabbi, he said, there we saw an extraordinary exception, a person who was on such a level who obviously was learning Torah on this level, because we see that all the praises that the Mishnah says afterwards, all were true about him. So you could imagine, you could imagine, when Rabbi Nassau speaking here about a person being able to serve Hashem with no ulterior motives whatsoever, with no thought of any personal gain whatsoever, whether it's covered, whether it's money or anything else, we're talking obviously about an extraordinary, extraordinary high level. The next item, Rabbi Nezal spoke about malbushin, clothing, and, and <coughs> respectable clothing. And Rabbi Nezal said <coughs> that a person, a true Yerei a person who has real respect for Hashem, has to be careful to make sure to wear respectable clothing also to whatever degree they can, that their clothing should look dignified. He should definitely shouldn't look schlumpy, sloppy in any way. And he said that even, even the people who come close to a tzaddik, to a true tzaddik, which means that these people don't allow themselves to be fooled by window dressing, by false appearances and that kind of thing, even they are only drawn to him 
because of his clothing, meaning there's a posse that says, Ki ha'odam v'ashem A human being sees what they see with their eyes. We see external, we see clothing, we see a body. Hashem sees what's going on inside the person. A human being can't really see that. So the fact that we are human beings, the fact that we live in this world, we are drawn to appearances. And in this respect, the Torah warns that a Talmud Chacham must go dressed like a Talmud Chacham. He must go dressed neatly and to have a respectable appearance. So the people see the dignity in the clothing that he's wearing. And this is what gives them respect for the person. And this is what helps them to be willing to follow him. And if he weren't dressed properly, they, they wouldn't see anything in him. This is even the followers of a tzaddik. And it's interesting, Rav Nosanzal once commented that had he not seen silver candlesticks on Rabbi Nosanzal's table when he first came to him for Shabbos, he might not have stayed. Meaning that Rav Nosanzal, those that are familiar, those that have read the, the life story of Rav Nosanzal and see how sincere this person was, how honest he was, how pure he was in so many different ways. And yet even he needed to see a certain ex external appearance of respect in order, in order to be able to make that connection. And this is obviously one of the reasons why the Torah warns that a Talmud Chacham who has a certain kind of stain on his clothing is Chayv Misa. Because of the fact that this person is representing Hashem, and we know the Torah says about Hashem, Hashem Moloch Geus Lavesh, Kaviochel Hashem dresses himself in pride, in a certain respect, a respectability. Talmud Chachamim also have to maintain a certain respectable look. Rabbi Nezal went on to say that Kaviochel Hashem cloaked himself in Mitzrayim, meaning all of the events, Hashem showing his power in a sense, bashing Paroi, bashing the Egyptians with one plague after another plague, this was all Levishim. This isn't, the, this isn't Hashem himself in a sense, this is the external. This is, we're seeing the outside of Hashem Kaviochel. And, and after that, after this incredible display of the levushim of Hashem, levush is synonymous with kavoid. Kavoid is synonymous with malchus. The Gemara says Rabbi Yochanan referred to his clothing as his respectability. So kavoid and garments go together. And kavoid and malchus go together, kingdom. And malchus is a concept of mishpot, judgment, so the, the judgment, the justice that Hashem imposed on the Egyptians, punishing them one after another, after all the suffering that they put the Jewish people through, Rabbi Nezal says, this was all levushim, kaviochal garments of Hashem. This was the external. And as time went on, the Jewish people got to know Hashem better and better kaviochal. They got to see at Matan Torah, when Hashem gave the Torah on Har Sinai, there the, the curtain was opened a little. 
there, Kaviyochel, the Jews saw something, a much higher level than those original garments, Kaviyochel, that Hashem showed in Egypt. But at first, in the beginning, the only way that Klal Yisrael, the Jewish nation, was able to be drawn close to Hashem was through these levushim, meaning these, these events that took place in Egypt. And this, again, is an incredible, important message for us to know that we need to know where we, where we are at, what level we're on, that we are not Hashem. We don't see necessarily what's going on inside of a person. And, and, and we, are, we are affected a lot by the externals, by what we see on the outside. And the fact that we are in an oilam asheker, in an upside down world, with the, the Torah defines it as that. So that sometimes people who externally appear to be the most respectable people, whether they're, the, they're wearing the most expensive clothing or the most, the most luxurious type clothing garments with all types of beautiful flowers, things like that. And people are taken by that very often. And people say, wow, you, you see the Shekhinah on that person. And, and you want to ask the person, what does the Shekhinah look like? What, what do you see? Can you describe what you saw? You know, no, no, no. You see Mamish, you see it on his face. Or you see it, you see, you see Malchus, you see royalty. We need to know that in this world that we have found, and especially as we get closer to the finish line, as we move away from the time that we had a Beis Hamikdash, where the, the, the presence of Hashem was revealed much more so than, than today, as we move away thousands of years from when we had the Beis Hamikdash, from Matan Torah and Sinai, we need to know that there's a tremendous Hasparon. We read this yesterday in Parshas Vayelech, where Hashem said, hastir, astir Hashem said, I'm going to hide. Hide means coverings, garments. And a person has to, has to really plead with Hashem, beg Hashem that I shouldn't be fooled by false garments. That just because a person is wearing certain colorful or seemingly royal garments, that doesn't mean that they're in, in actuality and reality so royal, that, that that's royalty. There's a mission in Pirkei Ovois where the Mishnah says, how would you describe the difference between the students of Avram Avinu and the students of Bilam? And the Mishnah says there that the students of Avram Avinu have all of these wonderful qualities and the students of Bilam, the opposite. So one of the commentaries asks, I don't understand. Why doesn't the Mishnah just say, what's the difference between Avraham and Bilam? Why does it say the difference between the students of Avram and the students of Bilam? And he explains that if you would have looked at Avram Avinu and Bilam, you wouldn't have seen any difference. To the human eye, they looked exactly the same, exactly the same. And it's only in their in the products, the byproducts that came from them, there it was easier to be able to differentiate, to see, hey, this is something that's real purity. This is holiness. And this is the opposite. This is the exact opposite. And again, sometimes they appear the same. We know that, that a rabbi has a beard and a priest has a beard. In other religions, they also they have beards. Some of them wear long garments and everything. And they, they walk around sometimes masquerading or appearing 
as if they're holy people. And, and unfortunately, we find out in many cases that that's not the case at all, that it was just an external, it was just a lavush, but inside, unfortunately, it was the exact opposite. Question in the chat, isn't it true that people are drawn to a tzaddik because of what they hear from him, not because of the way he looks? The answer is that Rabbi Nezal is telling us here that the external appearance definitely does affect people. It does affect people. What, what you're saying is, is, is a very important point. There are many, many leaders today, many Jewish leaders who don't speak. They don't say Torah. And, and you, you wonder, then why are people going to them if they don't speak and they're not hearing any Torah from them? And they say, no, the people are inspired by watching him, watching how he, just his appearance alone is very inspiring and the singing sometimes or watching how he's eating, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but the truth is, the real truth is that Rabbi Nezal puts tremendous emphasis on the, the words of the tzaddik, listening to the words of the tzaddik, that what the tzaddik is really all about is his, just like the Torah, is a book of Eitzos, advice. One of the most important reasons we go to tzaddikim is to seek their advice, to hear the word of Hashem from them. But again, we need to know that external appearances also have an effect. We know that, for example, Shabbos, the respect for Shabbos. Shabbos, we're told that the Shechina comes into our home and we're told that we're supposed to dress differently on Shabbos or on Yantif than during the weekdays. That there's a special mitzvah to have special clothing, better clothing, nicer clothing, more expensive clothing for Shabbos. And Yantif is even a higher level than that, the Yom Toivim. Soon we're going to be celebrating the holiday of Sukkot that it's, it's a time for special garments, especially for the women. And, and when we talk about going into the sukkah, the sukkah is called Sila de Mehmenusa. It's the, we're going into the shade of the divine presence of Hashem. And we're told that a person should bring their best, their best silverware, their best dishes, that all of this is these levushim, these garments, these externals, which also play an important part. There's a Pasuk, Rabbi Nezal refers, refers to this in chapter 22 in Likut Imran. There's a Pasuk, Mibsari Echse Elokai. From my flesh, I see Hashem. And Rabbi Nezal explains there that there's the body and there's the soul. The soul is spiritual. The soul is divine. The body is physical. The body is made from earth, earthliness. Rabbi Nezal says that it's important, it's important that the soul share with the body some of its feelings, some of that light, because sometimes the soul will experience ups and downs. And when the soul is experiencing a yurida, a major down, it needs a friend to lean on. It needs something to hold on to. And if the body is also connected to the soul, then the body can give support to the soul sometimes. And Rabbi Nezal speaks about this and other Sifrei Hasidus speak about this, that this is one of the reasons why we eat these special good foods on Shabbos and Yantif, and why we dress this way, because on, on <laughs> our level, in order for the Neshama to get a pickup, 
it, we need the body first. We need to lift up the body by giving the body this uplift, better clothing, putting on new, brand new or beautiful clothing for, for Shabbos Yantif and eating these special foods. Mibsori from my flesh, from this seeming Gashmias, Echselokai. This enables me to be able to see Hashem, to be able to experience the spiritual high in my davening, in my learning, you know, in my serving Hashem. The next item, 202, <clears throat> that year Shavuos. Again, when Rabbeinazal was in Uman, we know that Shavuos is when Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people. And, and Shavuos, there's a special union of staying up all night, learning Torah. And Shavuos is one of the three major times in the year when Rabbi Nassau told his students he wants them to come to him. <clears throat> and they did. And many times it, it required major sacrifice, traveling large distances in horse and buggy. And many of them walked. They couldn't afford horse and buggy. They walked to be with him for Rosh Hashanah, for Shavuos, for Shabbos Hanukkah. That year, Shavuos, the last Shavuos of Rabbi Nassau's life, <clears throat> he did not give a shir. He didn't speak any divrei Torah. And afterwards, Rabbi Nezal said, you're not such big sinners that I should have to teach you Torah. And he said this sort of as a joke. And later on, Rabbi Nezal explained <clears throat> that we know a major part of the Torah is based on the sins that the Jews committed. The whole story of the Egel Hazov, the Golden Calf, the Maraglim, the spies, all of this, those portions of the Torah came about as a result of sins that Jews committed. The Gemara says that if the Jews had not committed any sins, we would only have the five Chamoshim and Sefer Yehoshua, because the other 20 some odd, the other approximately 20 books, 19 books of the Torah, of the 24 books of the Nevi'im and Ksuvim, most of it is based on the ups and downs that the Jews had at the time. The Jews sinned, and the Nevi'im, the prophets, had to give them, had to rebuke them. And then they, they did tshuva, and then they sinned again, idol worship, all the different things that went on. So that there are whole major sections of Torah that came into being as a result of the sins of the Jewish people. Obviously, there was a, a deeper meaning in this. And Rav Nosenzal points out in another place, I believe Rav Nosenzal or Rav Nachman Shirinsh says this, that on Rosh Hashanah, that year, the, the final Rosh Hashanah, in chapter 8, in the second half of Likut Imran, which is the major shear that Rav Nosenzal gave that Rosh Hashanah, there he included a whole major piece about Shavuos, about Matan Torah, about Sivan, so that he, he paid back. In other words, he gave his students their Shavuos Torah, he filled it in in that final Rosh Hashanah. Rav Nosenzal continues, paragraph 204, <clears throat> that on the Shabbos of Parshas Chukas Bolok, <clears throat> which is in the middle of Bamidbar, on the 12th of Tammuz, right before the three weeks, <clears throat> that Friday night, Rabbi Nezal was talking about his, the things that he does and the reasons for them. And he commented about the fact that he was, many times he was doing unusual things 
which people couldn't understand. An example of this was how many times he moved from one location to the other location. Rabbein a short while after he was married, he moved to the city of Medvedevka, and over there, everything was good. He started attracting students, people were coming to him, he was giving shurim, everything was great. And things would have been, seemed, would have had peace and quiet if he remained there. But Rabbein didn't want that, and instead, he left Medvedevka and he went to Zlatopolia, where he had two years of incredible suffering, incredible opposition. That was when Zlatopolia was not far from where the Shpolazeda was. And that's when the major, major machlekes from him came. And in the city itself, Rabbein said he was walking on glass all the time. He was as uncomfortable as he could possibly be during that period. Tremendous opposition and suffering. And then he left, he left Zlatopolia and went to Breslov and spent almost eight years there. And then he left Breslov and came to Uman. And, and okay, okay, he came to Uman. You would think at least he would choose to go into a house of some respectable person. And instead, he chose to go into the house of this Nachman Nassim Rappaport, who he said was one of the major, major maskilim, one of the major founders of the reform movement. That was the first place he stayed when he came to Uman for a period of time. So Rabbein asked the people that were there, why? Why am I always doing these strange things that people can't understand? So Rabbein said, I spoke up <clears throat> and I said, didn't Moshe Rabbeinu marry one of the daughters of Yisroi? Out of all people, out of all the shiduchim that all the girls Moshe Rabbeinu could have married, he couldn't pick somebody further, further away from him than the daughter of the Pope? Yisroi, who had worshipped all the different idols. And Rav what I meant by this is that Hashem has a way of joining together opposites sometimes. Things that are very, very opposite of each other. <clears throat> that that the, the most foremost idol worshipper, Yisroi, from his family should come the wife of Moshe Rabbeinu. So similarly, Rabbeinu Zal had to, Rabbeinu Zal, who was on such a high madrega, had to make a connection to a person as far down as that, as this Nachmanasen. So Rabbeinu Zal said to all the people that were at the table at the time, did you hear his question? Did you hear the question he just said? Meaning Rabbeinu Zal was saying, paraphrasing this as a question. Why in the world did Moshe Rabbeinu marry the daughter of Yisrael? And Rabbeinu Zal said, you are not really qualified to be witnesses. And then Rabbeinu Zal said, I want it to be on record that I'm going to give an answer to this question. That's what he meant by witnesses, that you're here, you're all here to testify that I'm saying I'm going to give an answer to this question. He said, but for the time being, we'll take you as witnesses. But he said, anyway, it's Friday night. You're not like, we can't write now. But hopefully you're going to remember this. And then on, on that Shabbos morning, Rabbi Nizal spoke about this again. He repeated the fact that Rabbi Nizal had raised a major question. And he asked, do you have an answer to this? And, and if your answer is, 
that it's not a question, you know, that to me this isn't a question, that then you're answering a question with a question. And, and Rabbi Nazal said that he himself had been thinking about this for a while. He was occupied with this question for a long time, and he, he had been praying and pleading with Hashem to get the answer to this question. <coughs> and now, Rav Nosanzal asked this question, but he said, regarding the rest of you, you have no, you don't understand what this is all about. But he says, Rav Nosanzal said, I've been concerned about this for a long time, and I've been praying for this for a long time, not only during Shachris Minchamayrit, besides that, I've prayed many, many times regarding this. I wanted to hear the answer to this question directly from Hashem. I wanted to hear a voice from heaven giving me the answer to this question. And Rabbi Nassau said at first, he wasn't willing to hear the answer from any human being. Later, he said, he was prepared to give in a little and, and, and he was willing to get the answer from a shliach, from a shliach of Hashem. And then afterwards, he said he asked that at least if he could get the answer from an animal or a bird, but, but not from a human being. And Rabbi Nezal said that he did not yet have the answer to this question. And then he said to us, you're, you're all very small people. I don't have anyone to talk to here, really. But nevertheless, he said, the Gemara says, that there are times when even though a person doesn't see certain things with their eyes, their neshama senses it. Their soul senses that there's something major going on. There's something big going on. And then Rabbi Nezal said, I'm taking as witnesses the following. And then he stopped. And then he stopped. Uh, meaning to say, Rav Nosanzal says, that he was taking our neshamas, he was taking our souls as witnesses. And Rav, Rav Nosanzal says he spoke about this a lot th throughout, the, throughout the day, but, but he, he never really explained and answered the question why it has to be this way, Badafka, that, that a Moshe Rabbeinu, somebody on such a high level, should should have to take some somebody from such a completely opposite place. And again, why Rabbeinazal had to go into such a low place, the place, you know, of the, the home of where, where this Nachmanasan lived previously. Not that we're attempting to, to say we, we know it. If Rabbeinazal said he didn't give the answer, then we don't have the answer. We know, however, that it is discussed in Rabbeinus al-Sfarim, in many places, that the higher the level of holiness, the more it has the ability to reach down, further down, and be able to bring light to those places. <clears throat> so that, again, when the Jews were in Egypt, and we're told that the Jews reached a very low level, the 49 levels of Tumah, of impurity, Hashem had to send a tzaddik on the Madrig of Moshe Rabbeinu, such an incredible high-level tzaddik, to be able to, to bring the light of Hashem down to us, to be able to rescue us and take us out of there. I mentioned just this morning in Ashir that we know the highest level within the 10 midos of Hashem, the 10 spheroids, keser, the crown is called the highest level. 
The word keser is bigimatria 620, which is the same numerical value as the Hebrew word esrim. Esrim in Hebrew means 20. And it's brought, the reason for this is because the light of keser, keser is the top one of the 10 spheroids. The light of keser is able to reach down, go all the way down, down, down to the lowest level, to the malchus, 10 floors down, and be able to bounce back up, to come back up 10 levels. That's this 20, the 20 levels. But obviously there's much more depth to this, which Rabbein Azal did not go into. The question, what are we supposed to take away from this? The answer is we're supposed to take away that there's many, many things that we don't understand. When a person is learning Torah, and it seems to them that they understand everything, that they know everything, that's the greatest proof that they don't know anything. When a person feels that they understand Hashem, or they understand a tzaddik, that's the greatest sign that they really don't understand at all. Because remember, we mentioned that in, in the Kuzari, it says, Ilu If you would understand Hashem, you would be Hashem. And just like by Hashem, there are many things that we cannot understand. So too, when it comes to the great tzaddikim, <coughs> there definitely are many things about them that we cannot understand. We need to know that. And, and sometimes we, we get a blink, we get a, a view of certain things that took place between Rabbi Nizal and his students, where despite the fact that Rabbi Nizal revealed an incredible amount, it's not like all of his interaction with his students was games. Rabbi Nizal taught fabulous Torah and, and revealed incredible things, but there were certain things that he couldn't reveal. There were certain things that he understood should not be revealed, certain questions that shouldn't be answered. Rabbi Nizal has a whole chapter in Likut Imran, in the second half of Likut Imran, chapter seven, where Rabbi Nizal explains there that a person who's teach, teaching Torah when a student asks a question and the, the teacher gives the answer, very often by answering that question, you're bringing up the next question. Notice by answering a person, a student is on, on the level six and they're asking a question on level six. When the rabbi provides the answer for that question, now that student has completed level six, now they go up to level seven, and now they have new questions from level seven. Each time a question is answered, each time Torah is revealed, then new questions come up. And a person teaching Torah has to be careful, extremely careful, that sometimes that new question can be such a powerful question that it could put doubts into the student's mind, doubts about Hashem, Hashem, that kind of thing. So there are times that a rabbi will withhold the answer of a question for a question because he knows that if he answers that question, it's going to open up a Pandora's box. It's going to open up more difficult questions, which the student is not ready to hear the answer for, and those questions could harm them. We refer to Yisroy as the Pope. He's called Koyhein Midyan. And my, my Rebbe Rav Rosenfeld used that term Pope that he worshiped all idols. He was like a, a master of idol worship, just like the Pope is considered to be a leader, a leader of, of 
not, not recognizing our Hashem. Now the next paragraph, 205, <clears throat> here in, in Mechayim Aran, Rav Nosenthal goes into a discussion a little bit about what was part of that final shear that Rav Nosenthal gave on the Rosh Hashanah before he passed away. Rav Nosenthal writes that one of Rav students, I believe this was Rav Shmuel from Teplik, who made, took a trip with Rav that summer during the time that Rav was living in Oman, Rabbeinazal made a trip to the city of Trovitza, and this student said that Rabbeinazal spoke to him about the meaning of his life, what his life is really all about. And Rabbeinazal made a comment that it amazes me that I have no share, I have no share in this world. I have no connection in a sense to the materialistic world. And yet, wherever I go, there's a place for me and everything is mine. So this person, this student said to Rabbi Nezal, doesn't everybody have a share in you? And Rabbi Nezal responded with a, a few important statements. He said <clears throat> that the, the, the leaders of today are people who are not on a high level. They have no idea at all whatsoever about what I'm doing here in Oman. If they knew, if they had an idea of how the preciousness and the beauty of the new things that are being opened up and the innovations, the things that are being accomplished here and the simcha that's being born every minute of the day, tefillahs are going up every moment. And, and things, incredible things are being accomplished here every single moment. And Rabbi Nezah went on to say that we know there's a Pesach in Eicha where it says, It refers to the Jewish people as hallowed stones, which have been spilled out, scattered in the streets talking about the, this, during the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. And Rabbi Nezal said, we find in the Sefer Yitzira, which is one of the earliest, earliest Sifrei Kabbalah, it says there that two stones can build two structures. If you have two stones, A and B, they can form two forms, AB and BA. If you have three stones, ABC, they can form six combinations, six houses, ABC, ACB, and, and et cetera, et cetera, the six different formats. Four stones can form 24 houses. What are these houses? What houses are we talking about here? Rabbi Nezal said, the Pesach says, ki beisi beis tefillah. Hashem says, my house is a house of tefillah, a house of prayer. And Rabbi Nezal went on to explain Wherever there is a gathering of Jews, wherever Jews get together, each person, each new person that gets added changes the structure completely, completely. In the example we gave, let's say you had three stones, you had A, B, and C. When a D comes along, it's not just an addition, but every single one of those structures that were there before that previously were made up of three, 
Now they're no longer made up of three. Now each one of those structures is made up of four. And Rabbi Nezal said, more stones are being added all the time, and therefore more structures are being built. And Rabbi Nezal said, you could imagine, you could imagine the incredible joy and, and when, a, when a tzaddik brings together, when souls come to a tzaddik, they gather to him and they join together and generate these batim, these houses of prayer. And then he went on to say that, that there are some of these stones, some of these Jewish souls, which have been scattered in the streets, meaning they've gone lost, Rahman al-Islam. And when these stones are gathered in and they're added, again, whole new structures are formed. And Rabbi Nezal said, for a period of time till now, I have been privileged to have a share in the tefillahs of Klau Yisrael, meaning that I have an important role in all the tefillahs of all of Klau Yisrael. Now, these other tzaddikim, shouldn't they be examining themselves and asking themselves, who's behind all of this? Who's the battery for all of this? And surely, when, when any person makes any movement in tefillah, any movement at all, even the Rishoyim, even the sinners, even when they pray, Rabbi Nezal said, it's all going through me. I have a share, I have a portion in all of this. Rabbi Nezal didn't go on to explain how this applies to his being in Oman, but Rabbi Nezal says we could understand to a degree that this had to do with his coming specifically to Oman, to a place where so many thousands of Jews had been martyred, had been killed, slaughtered, Al-Kiddush Hashem, because they refused to bow to a cross. They refused to show any rejection of faith in Hashem. And we know that when Jews are slaughtered, when Jews are massacred in that kind of way, that's what the Pasuk in Eicha is referring to when it says, these holy stones were scattered in, in the streets all over. But Rav Nosenthal says we still don't understand, we don't understand fully or really what Rav Nosenthal is referring to here. And he says, fortunate is the person who will be Zerche in the future to be able to understand this. There are things that Rav Nosenthal said or he did, you know, for the sake of Hashem, that, that we are not in a position to be able to understand. And Rav Nosenthal made a statement he said, you're, you're, you're fortunate, you're privileged to have a, a Rebbe like me. I envy you. But he said, now it's already very difficult for somebody else to come close. Again, this was towards the end of Rabbi Nezal's life, when there had been major machlokes before that. <clears throat> and Rabbi Nezal was implying that even though there's such a great light here, the, the power, the opposition, the sitrachra is so powerful that that still makes it very, very difficult to be able to come close to Rabbi Nezal. I want to emphasize once again for some people who feel uncomfortable a little when they, 
when they hear a tzaddik speaking about himself, especially in the case of Rabbein Azal, we mentioned in the past that there are examples in the Gemara, in the Zohar Kodesh, and other places of this, that, that Hashem is Emes, Hashem is truth. The Torah is the book of truth, it's the book of Emes. And this is part of the truths that we need to know. In, in many instances, if Moshe Rabbeinu did not tell us about himself, that he had this incredible humility, if Moshe Rabbeinu did not write the words <clears throat> that out of all the people in the world, he was considered the most trustworthy person to Hashem, the most loyal shepherd. If he wouldn't have written it, we wouldn't know it. We wouldn't know it on our own. There are many, many times where a tzaddik has to, has to reveal, or has to explain, enlighten us a little bit to get an idea as to who he is or what he's about in order for us to realize how important it is for us to come close to the tzaddik, to take his teaching seriously, to take his advice seriously, so that we can, we can draw the, the full benefits. We know that, <clears throat> that we're, coming, we're coming close to the finish line. We're hoping that the Geula is not far away, and, and the Torah tells us throughout that just like during the time of the Mabel, Noah's flood, <clears throat> there was tremendous destruction, and there was a tzaddik, and those who were close to the tzaddik were saved. Rabbeinazal said that there's going to be a flood of apikursis. There's going to be a flood of denial of Hashem. There's going to be technology and other things which are going to take Hashem's place. We're living in incredible times. There was a time when in a religious home on Shabbos, a, a religious child would never, in their wildest dreams, think of desecrating Shabbos. And we hear we're living in times we're in a, a religious home sometimes. A child will be playing with their phone on Shabbos. Right? And you ask, how is this possible? How is it conceivable? A child that grew up their whole life knowing Shabbos, you can't touch a phone with it. The answer is that the, the power, there's a power of Tumah in the world. There's a, a, there's a hiddenness. The, uh, Hashem has, has become so well hidden by all of these opposing forces that it's only by coming close to true tzaddikim and studying their words and following their advice and guidance and having the proper respect and love for them. Rabbi Nezal writes on the Kutimran that the Sahara tries to get us to love the wrong things, things that are harmful for us. <clears throat> and the Pasuk says, Dovra Melech says, Nifleisi ahavos choli me ahavas noshim. Dovra Melech or Yoinesen ben, ben Shol said, <clears throat> that the love that I feel for you is greater than the love that a man feels towards women. And in order for us to be able to, 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 to feel this love, this love for Hashem, this love and respect for Hashem, this love and respect for a tzaddik, we have to have an inkling as to how special they are, how great they are. We should be zerche to emunah tzaddikim, to emunah Hashem, emunah tzaddikim, emunah in the Torah, and, and thereby to be zerche, to get the full benefits of the Torah, of the tzaddikim, and, and thereby be zerche, to a true tshuva. The Rabbi Nezal says the term bal tshuva, when people use the word bal tshuva, they're usually referring to a person who is not religious at one point and becomes religious. But bal means the master, 
The masters of tshuva are the true tzaddikim. They are the ones who really, really understand what a person goes through, the ups and downs that we go through, and they're the ones who understand and, and teach us how to do tshuva. I was looking at an index of Likuti Alochis on Shabbos. There's a Sefer Neufest Sufim, which is an index on Likuti Alochis. Under, under the topic of tshuva, there are 219 discussions in Likuti Alochis about tshuva. So many different aspects and, and ideas and ways of how a person can do tshuva and, and what tshuva is really all about. We should be zeicher. By, and, and this is Rabbi Nosenzal, this is a student of Rabbi Nachman. We should be zeicher to come close to Rabbi Nazal and his students and thereby be zeicher to a real tshuva shalema and be zeicher to the gula shalema. A question in the chat, is there a significance to the number of houses required for specific things to take place? The answer is definitely yes, 100%. The examples, a zimun, you need three people to eat together in order to be able to say that the zimun for Birch If you have 10 people, you can say <clears throat> There's definitely tremendous, tremendous significance in these numbers. All the numbers that are used in the Torah, the, the Tzirufim, the 12 combinations of Yudke Vavke, which correspond to the 12 months of the year, which correspond to the 12 tribes. And, and all of these numbers have tremendous meaningfulness. And when Jews get together, depending on how many people they, they are and, to, and, and the manner they get together, they multiply the, the generation of these Batim, these structures of Kedushim. Wishing everybody a meaningful Yom Kippur, and and we should be zeichet to go into sukkahs full of simcha. It's a shame. Amen. Thank you very much, Rabbi Nassim.